Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Australia's Special Forces Troops, the SAS and Commandos, are recognised as some of the best in the world. Through the Vietnam War, the SAS undertook long-distance reconnaissance patrols deep behind enemy lines. More recently, in Afghanistan, the SAS has been joined by the commandos, and together they carried the lion's share of Australia's commitment, particularly in the earlier years. But where did the tactics, fighting ability and unique culture begin? And why was it deemed necessary to have a group of elite troops trained to take the risks and perform tasks deemed to be damn near impossible for the average soldier? For the answers, we have to go all the way back to World War II and to the end of the alphabet. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australia's servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. First up, uh, an unpaid announcement. As of December 2020, at least 500, probably more, veterans have taken their own lives since the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. Personally, I know of at least two of the blokes I joined up with who are part of that number, and at least another two who have attempted which is why I'm passionate about this this cause. I've never intended this podcast to get political, and I won't here, but just let me say that in this day and age, losing 500 people who have served this country is a disgrace, and I'll just leave it at that. But rather sit back and say it's disgraceful and somebody needs to do something, I've decided something much more positive would be get off my ass and actually do something myself. And you, dear listeners, can help me. As you may or may not know, Soldier On is an organisation here in Australia which provides support and programs to veterans who are suffering from physical and psychological injuries as a result of their service. In March 2021, they've issued a challenge to march 96 kilometres within the month of March to raise funds to help them continue their work. The significance of 96 kilometres is that that is the length of the Kokoda track. Obviously, with the Rona and all that, walking the actual track is not possible, so it's a virtual challenge. Much to the disgust of my worn-out arthritic old knees, and despite 25 years of sloth and gluttony, I've signed on to this challenge. This is where you wonderful people come in. I would like you to head over to the page fundraise.soldieron.org.au forward slash fundraisers forward slash Warwick O'Neill forward slash march on. I'll put a link in the description and offer a donation. All monies raised go directly to Soldier On, so there's no financial advantage for me personally, which is why I don't feel too bad about putting my hand out for money. To keep track of exactly where I suffer my heart attack, you can follow my progress on our Instagram page, details at the end of this episode, where you are free to comment, laugh hysterically as I struggle for that precious, precious oxygen, and maybe even offer a bit of encouragement. And I thank you in advance. Now on with today's offering. The nature of war in the Pacific from 1942 to 1945 was different to anything that had gone before. Air transport, large ships and landing craft meant the Pacific Theatre covered millions of square kilometres and was fought on hundreds of islands, large and small. In a horribly oversimplified nutshell, the opposing tactics consisted of the Japanese Imperial Army occupying and holding islands at all costs 
while the Allies, led by the Americans, tried to get in behind each island and cut off their supply routes, leaving the garrisons to wither and die. How's that for narrowing down a complicated four-year campaign into a single sentence? Operating over such a large area required different thinking on behalf of the commanders. There was no point planning a massive assault on one island while the enemy was quietly slipping past unnoticed on another island. Reconnaissance and intelligence gathering was vital, as was doing whatever was possible to hamper the enemy operations. The secret to success in these sorts of tasks was remaining undetected, and so couldn't be performed by large units. General Blamey, in a rare flash of strategic brilliance, looked to what England had been doing to disrupt German operations in occupied Europe. They had formed the Secret Operations Executive, SOE, a group of highly skilled operatives conducting espionage, reconnaissance and sabotage activities who were basically a pain in the German backside. Blamey wanted something similar for operations in the South West Pacific Theatre. The Inter-Allied Services Department, IASD, was formed in March 1942, and in June a special unit was established for raiding and commando duties. It was designated Z Special Unit. The force consisted mainly of Australians, but included some Poms, some Dutch, New Zealanders, Timorese and Indonesian soldiers. They operated largely throughout Borneo and the Dutch East Indies, now known as Indonesia, but were known to pop up in all sorts of locations throughout the Southwest Pacific. The type of soldier who would volunteer for such operations is exemplified by Captain Jock McLaren of Bundaberg in Queensland. He began his war as a private in a field workshop, maintaining artillery. He became a POW, probably at the fall of Singapore, and was marshaled off the Changi POW camp. Unenthused with the accommodations, he absconded, but was later recaptured. At some point, he wound up at Sandigan Prison in North Borneo, from which he again escaped, and with another former prisoner, Major Rex Blow, ended up on Mindanao Island in the Philippines. Now, there's some conjecture about an event that happened, but although Rex Blow wasn't witness to it, he reckons it's fair income, so I'll impart it here. Basically, the story goes that Jock performed his own appendectomy. In the hut of a village chief, racked with pain and unable to continue to evade the Japanese, who were only a few miles away, he realised if he did nothing, he would die. The village did have a medical-type person, but he refused to operate as he hadn't actually completed his training. So Jock went, bugger it, I'll do it myself. So with the villager holding a mirror, Jock, who had been a vet before the war, sterilised a knife and a needle, and bent a couple of soup spoons to act as spreaders. He made the incision in his abdomen, used the spoons to pull the muscles aside, located the appendix and cut it out. He then used the needle and some thread made from banana leaves to sew it all back up. A few days later he was able to, very gingerly, get away from the village and avoid the Japanese. It sounds a bit unlikely, but there have been two actual documented instances of people performing this surgery on themselves, so it's at least plausible. And the fact that it is plausible, and that Rex Blower says it's likely, is enough of an indication of the type as hard-as-nails person that McLaren was. Just the type for Zed's special unit. He joined the unit in late 1945 and operated in Borneo in the closing stages of the war. Several secret training camps were established around Australia, in Broken Bay, Sydney, Cairns and Fraser Island in Queensland and Garden Island in Western Australia. In Darwin, the camp was named the Lugger Maintenance Section probably because secret base for training badass soldiers was a bit of a mouthful and a dead giveaway. As you can probably imagine, finding information relating to the raising and recruiting of this force is not easy, but I did find an interview with Jack Treadray, who joined Zed Special Unit as a 24-year-old. All he said about his recruitment was, quote, I'd been in the army a couple of years and I was a sergeant, and I was teaching people to go away and fight all the time. 
I didn't appreciate it. Every time I tried to get onto a transfer, I was told, no, we need you here. But once I heard about Zed's special unit, I volunteered immediately, knowing that they wouldn't knock that one back. End quote. No mention of how he heard about it. But regardless of how the men were recruited, they all signed up under the same conditions. They weren't given specific details of what would be required of them, only that it would be hard going. They weren't permitted to tell anyone, not even their closest confidence, where they were training or what kind of training they were doing. Not that they really knew enough to tell anyone anyway. The training was varied, including signals, demolition, navigation by land and sea, canoeing and general survival skills. Once a specific mission was devised, then training would become more specific and specialised. But more than anything, the training was unorthodox. The preparation for Operation Scorpion was one such case. The intention of the operations was for the troops to be transported to a position off the coast of Rabaul by submarine, then paddle kayaks into the harbour, attach limpet mines to the Japanese shipping and paddle away. To train for the infiltration of a heavily guarded harbour, it was decided by Lieutenant Samuel Carey that his force would attempt to row into Townsville Harbour. At that time, the harbour was on full alert for the possibility of Japanese attacks and was full of military and merchant shipping. A perfect test run. At midnight on 22nd of June 1943, the raiding party left their base on Magnetic Island, just off the coast of Townsville, and paddled towards the harbour. They easily slipped in among the ships, undetected, and attached fake limpet mines to ten unsuspecting vessels. With the job done, they continued to row into the Ross River, where they hid their kayaks and went into town to find somewhere to sleep for the rest of the night. It wasn't until around 10 o'clock the next morning that the captains of the ships noticed they had a little something extra on the side of their ships. As you can imagine, the panic button was pushed with much urgency, and the general hubbub attracted Carey and his men, who attempted to set the record straight. Carey told the officers that the mines were fake, but the Navy officers didn't believe him. He even produced a letter from General Blamey authorising the exercise, but the officials were not happy and Carey was arrested. He was eventually released on the condition that he left Zed's special unit. Operation Scorpion was eventually abandoned due to the difficulty in securing a submarine to transport the raiding party. But the Townsville raid was not a waste of time. It provided some valuable lessons which would soon be put into effect during a different operation targeting Singapore Harbour, Operation Jaywick. In 1943, a British officer, Major Ivan Lyon, and an Australian civilian, Bill Reynolds, came up with a plan which would become Jaywick. Reynolds had escaped Singapore Harbour before it fell to the Japanese. He used an old fishing vessel, named the Kafukumaru, to carry a number of refugees with him. The Kafukumaru ended up in India, but Reynolds ordered it to be sailed to Australia, where it was renamed Crate, in honour of a venomous Asian snake. The Crate would become central to Operation Jaywick. A team was formed to carry out the raid and consisted of Major Lyon, four British soldiers and 11 Australians. In total, the crew had four soldiers and the rest were of naval origins, which makes a lot of sense as it was almost totally a seaborne operation. So, you know, once again, credit where credit is due. Go Navy. Just kidding. I wouldn't have done what they did for all the beer in Queensland. Their training was undertaken at Refuge Bay, a rough and inaccessible area of the Hawkesbury River. Here they became acquainted with the fragile crafts they would need to row into Singapore collapsible canoes called foalboats. With the training complete and plans finalised, the team was transported to Exmouth in Western Australia where they met up with the crate. The plan was to sail from Exmouth to a point 30 miles off the coast of Singapore disguised as Indonesian fishermen. They applied dye to their skin and hair and wore sarongs just in case they encountered Japanese marine patrols or reconnaissance aircraft. The crate left Exmouth 
on 2nd of September and chugged along, regularly breaking down, but always moving forward. According to able seaman Moss Berryman, they weren't told what their destination was until they'd left Exmouth. Lyon called them all together and said, You've probably been wondering where we're going. Well, we're going to Singapore to blow up a few ships. She arrived at her designated point on 24th of September, so 22 days of bobbing about on the Indian Ocean, and as darkness fell, six men left the crate and paddled their three foal boats the final 30 miles to a small island near the harbour entrance. So just in case you missed that, they paddled their little boats across 30 miles of open ocean in the dark. Like I said, not for all the beer in Queensland. Having landed exactly where they intended to, they established a base in a small cave and prepared for the most dangerous phase of the operation. By the night of the 26th of September, they were ready and slowly and silently slipped into a harbour full of Japanese ships. They separated and began rowing up to the ships and placing limpet mines below the waterline and quietly slipping onto the next ship. With all the mines laid and still undetected, the party then returned to their cave. Behind them, the mines began to explode, one after the other as Singapore Harbour was set alight. Seven ships were believed to have been sunk entirely, while a number of others were seriously damaged. There has been some doubt about these numbers in recent years though, with the possibility that only three ships were sunk and half a dozen damaged. Either way, it's still an amazing feat. The raiding party returned to their cave to wait out the search by the Japanese and then headed back to sea to eventually meet up, exhausted but triumphant, with the crate on 2nd of October. They were not out of the woods yet though. They still had to make their way back to Australia. It was on their return trip that they came closest to discovery. While sailing through the Lombok Strait, they were approached by a Japanese minesweeper. The men were awakened and Lion handed around cyanide pills, just in case. But their disguise must have worked because the Japanese vessel moved on without investigating the crate. The raid set a number of records. No one had ever attacked so far behind enemy lines before, and no single raid had ever sunk seven ships in a little over an hour. However, later in life, Berryman had mixed feelings about the raid. The Japanese had no idea who was responsible, and in their efforts to find out, many innocent people were murdered. In hindsight, Berryman felt they probably shouldn't have done it. The success of Jaywick encouraged a further operation against Singapore Harbour named Rumua. It was again led by Major Lyon. Again, the plan was to enter the harbour, this time using semi-submersible canoes known as Sleeping Beauties. The party was taken by submarine, HMS Porpoise, to the island of Merapis. There, they commandeered a Malay fishing vessel named Mastika, securing the Malay crew in the Porpoise. While heading towards its target, they were challenged by a Japanese patrol boat. Someone on board Mastika opened fire, killing three of the patrol boat's crew. Two of the crew members escaped overboard, unseen by the party, and later raised the alarm. Lyon abandoned the mission and headed back to Marappas, where they dropped off the majority of the crew. But Lyons took six men in foal boats and rowed into Singapore Harbour, where it was reported they sank another three ships. Soon after, while attempting to return to Australia, the entire party was discovered by Japanese troops. In the ensuing fighting, Lyon and 12 others were killed, with the other 10 captured. Those 10 were later executed in July 1945. The unit's last major operation in the New Guinea theatre was Operation Copper in April 1945. Preparations were underway for the invasion of Wewak on the northern coast of New Guinea. Intelligence reports suggested that the Japanese had two 140mm long-range guns in a position on Mushu Island, roughly 10 miles from the proposed landing sites. If the guns were in position, they would inflict massive casualties on any attacking force landing in the area. Confirmation was needed and so the Z Special Unit was ordered to carry out a reconnaissance.
On 11th of April, eight men launched their fireboats from a patrol boat and headed towards Mushu Island, but the currents had pushed them away from their proposed landing spot and they were swamped by the surf as they came ashore. They lost much of their equipment and their radio equipment was ruined by the salt water. Unperturbed, at daybreak they commenced their patrol, unaware that some of the wreckage had been discovered by the Japanese. The thousand-strong garrison was notified and the hunt began. All thoughts of gathering intelligence was forgotten as the Australians attempted to avoid capture, but on a small island they had little hope. Before long, seven of the men were killed and only sapper Mick Dennis managed to escape. Dennis was a very experienced soldier and managed to evade the searching Japanese, successfully returning to the southern beach and then swam towards Weewak where he met up with an Australian patrol. Despite the disastrous outcome, technically Operation Copper was a success. Dennis was able to confirm the location of the guns, which were taken care of prior to the landing at Weewak. As well as operations around New Guinea and Singapore, Z Special Unit operated in Borneo from 1943 to 45. Primarily consisting of surveillance and sabotage, Z Unit operatives also assisted in training native militia in resistance techniques, with mixed success. Operation Python was the main focus of the Borneo activities, lasting throughout 1943 and 44. Three operators were landed on the island to set up a secret radio transmitter where they would be able to relay information on the activities of the Japanese Navy through the Cebutu Passage between Borneo and the Philippines, the Balabak Strait to the north of Borneo and the Sulu Sea to the northeast. Thus endeth the geography lesson. Now back to the history. With the radio in place, the operatives used the ever-faithful foalboats to navigate around the coastline and to travel up the inland waterways to observe the comings and goings of the Japanese and return to Labian Point to send that information to Allied Command. The information gathered gave the commanders vital intelligence on Japanese operations and enabled planning and future operations in the area. In preparation for Allied landings in Borneo, Operations Agas and Seamut were launched in 1944. These were generally about gathering intelligence and harassing the Japanese garrison. Agas consisted of five separate insertions, some via submarine and, you guess it, foal boats, while others parachuted in. The Agas operatives worked closely with the local guerrilla forces to gather information and were also able to make contact with two Chinese operatives who were able to provide useful information. Agas-1 was the first to discover the events surrounding the Sandakan Death March, which resulted in the deaths of 2,434 Allied prisoners of war. While Agas was being conducted on the northeastern sector of Borneo, Operation Seamut was conducted on the northwest sector. A couple of days prior to the Australian landings at Labourne Island, Seamut Group 1 captured a Japanese wireless station. This greatly hampered the Japanese response to the landings as they weren't able to effectively direct their garrison troops as the battle progressed. The combined operations Agus and Seamut gathered information relating to troop dispositions, transport routes, staging points, locations of Japanese airfields, food and ammunition dumps. They were also able to pinpoint locations of POW camps which helped in the planning of air support for the upcoming landings in Borneo, although there were instances of POWs being bombed. When the Borneo landings took place, the attackers were armed with extensive and mostly accurate information. The enemy numbers estimated by the Z unit operatives was placed at 31,000. Records gathered after the war suggested the Japanese garrison consisted of 35,000. So given the rough terrain and, and the conditions the men were operating in, an error of 4,000 troops is still pretty good going. Another operation of note was Operation Opossum. Just off the coast of Borneo was the tiny island of Ternate, which was home to the Sultan Iskandar Muhammad Jabit Sayyar. 
When the Japanese captured the island in 1942, they also captured the Sultan and his wives and advisers. This was quite an embarrassment for the Dutch authorities, who technically was supposed to be protecting the Sultan. Sayo was able to get a message to General MacArthur requesting a rescue, and with a bit of persuasion by the Dutch, and taking into account the Sultan had always been supportive of the Allied cause, MacArthur authorised the rescue mission. Eight Australians, three Dutch and a Timorese corporal, left Moritai on 8th of April 1945 aboard US patrol boats and were landed on Hiri Island. The party made their way to the Sultan's palace and successfully removed the Sultan, his two wives, handful of children and some relatives and hangers-on. The following day, Japanese soldiers landed on the island before the fugitives had been extracted. A firefight erupted, which resulted in the death of an Australian, Lieutenant George Bosworth. Assuming command, Warrant Officer Dick Perry attacked the Japanese, who were all killed. The Sultan's retinue were then extracted to Brisbane, where they sat out the last few months of the war at Waikol, on the outskirts of Brisbane. Zed's special unit was not the exclusive domain of Australians. Like so many of our military operations, Zed unit also included men from New Zealand. You know, that small couple of islands off the east coast of Australia? Twenty-two of them, in fact, volunteered, and were trained at the Fraser Commando School on Fraser Island. They participated in many operations throughout the lead-up to the Borneo landings. In all, four of those men were killed in the operations. Two were presumed drowned while attempting to get ashore in heavy seas, while a third did make it ashore but was captured and died of beriberi while in captivity. One unfortunate Kiwi warrior parachuted into Borneo as part of the platypus operations. Along with one Australian and a Malay interpreter, signalman Ernie Myers parachuted into the middle of a Japanese camp. During a brief but spirited fight, the Australian was killed and Myers was captured along with the interpreter. They endured three days of torture before being beheaded. After the war, native witnesses provided evidence to the torture and murder and those Japanese soldiers involved were brought to justice. The operations I've just described are the most notable examples of the types of activities that Z Special Unit got up to. They show the daring nature of the work as well as the skills which must have been displayed in order to track and report on Japanese movements in Borneo over a number of months without being captured. They also showed the risk these men faced if something went wrong, with most of the men who were captured subsequently dying from disease or execution. In all, Z Special Unit carried out 81 operations throughout the southwest Pacific, usually working behind enemy lines, either being parachuted in or rowing ashore over many miles in the ever-reliable foalboats, their operations, largely unacknowledged at the time for security reasons, played a small but important role in the eventual defeat of the Japanese army in the region. The procedures and techniques they trialled and perfected formed the basis of special forces training still in use today and established the tradition of excellence and professionalism which exemplifies the special forces community. If you enjoyed that episode, if so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.